Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. I am Dr. Bill Kanaski. This is brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Uh, great guest today uh, with a fantastic haircut, just like mine. We're both glowing off of the screen if you're watching this. If you're listening on Spotify, uh, you're, you're missing some gray haircuts here. Uh, Mr. Bill Mitchell from Atlanta, Georgia Defense Council. How are you doing, Bill? I am doing very well, Bill. I'm, I'm wearing the glasses. Bill Mitchell, the lawyer's in the glasses. Yeah, and, and yeah, Bill, yeah. the 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 psych is is uh, not in glasses. That's how we'll know each other. Yeah, uh, you you could be my stunt double. I could be yours. You know, depending depending on on, on how that uh, would work. Uh, I've been so excited to have you on this show. Um, given your given your background, um, and and what you focus on, uh, what you've published, um, I think it's gonna be this can be a, a a great conversation. So um, just to give the the audience a little just uh, kind of rundown of who you are. So uh, Bill's a founding partner of Cruiser and Mitchell, and he's been there for uh, 30 years. And uh, he is uh, has a reputation for being uh, retained, uh, has counsel and 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 a deal maker. We're going to talk about that uh, today uh, related uh, you know, to complicated and high dollar uh, civil litigation uh matters uh based in atlanta georgia and i read here that uh are you a michigan state spartan i am i'm a sparty man sparty hey listen my uh my co-host who's currently on an airplane in las vegas to do a mock trial dr steve wood he he is a huge uh michigan state fan and are you ready for this he he married a michigan grad can you imagine what that what that household is like in the fall it's this well, constant conflict. I mean, can you imagine that? Every four years we kick their butt. And yeah. then we have to celebrate hard. But it's Michigan. You know what, Michigan, I grew up being a Michigan fan, but unfortunately I wasn't smart enough to go to Michigan. So it took me one full year to switch my, it took me a full year at state to switch my allegiance to now I hate Michigan. So I apologize to the Michigan people. I do respect Michigan. I just have to hate them now. Oh yeah, it's a big, it's a it's a controversy that pops up on this podcast um, yeah. all the time. Uh, I um, uh, I'm a, I went to University of North Carolina, so in the spring, uh, Doctor Wood and I go at it uh, in college basketball. But I tell you what, I'm a huge Tom Izzo fan. I think he's a fan. I think he's one of the. I'm so glad he hasn't quit yet because you know Coach K got out, Roy Williams got out, Jay Wright got out because they can't handle this whole transfer portal and all the yeah. nil it's a real pain in the ass and and somehow Izzo stays in there and here's the thing i really think Izzo has a little bobby knight in him i i see i think his head may explode during a game I, yeah i mean i agree I know. you know it's but i'll give him and there's a different this is a great discussion for a different time but you know the philosophy of coaching has had to change but and I know I see Izzo once in a while, he gets red-faced and he's screaming at some guy, but yeah. those guys love him. They do. Jermont Green, et cetera, these guys love him. They they absolutely do, and he's a great guy. I hope he's around for a long time. So, Bill, you're you're in Atlanta, and I'm going to throw something out. It's kind of a curveball first question, but, you know, every I think every year, every couple of years, they have this list that comes out, the updated list of judicial hellholes, and you got – I think Atlanta or the entire state of Georgia pretty much came in. So not only did you get the college football title, you got, you got number one in judicial yeah. hell holes. Congratulations. Congratulations on both trophies. Um, what, what I now listen, I've been working in Atlanta for 20 years myself. 
Um, and it's always been, particularly some of those counties, uh, urban, you know, uh, those yeah. urban counties there in Atlanta has always been dangerous. What has changed maybe in the last couple of years that's made it even more dangerous in the Atlanta area? Probably at least two things. One, our jury rolls went from um, voters, registered voters, to license, registered driver's license. So we went from people who intentionally signed up to vote, which, you know, is a different, you would know better than me, that's a different demographic, demographic, different profile to anybody who drives. So I think that has liberalized our jury pools. And secondly, I just think we have a change in, in philosophy of life. And here's an example I actually give to clients when I'm trying to explain to them why we probably should settle a case versus go to trial is um, a couple of years ago, a Brinks truck in the middle of the morning during rush hour, just before COVID, so it's been probably three years now, broke open on I-285, upper um, perimeter. Hundreds of thousands of dollars went out on the interstate. They recovered like a quarter of it. Oh my God! These are these are honest everyday. This is not like people who just got out of jail and they were yeah. riding somewhere and boom. These are all honest, likely honest, normal citizens, and they went for the money grab. And I tell my clients, those are the people on your jury. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Wow. I'm hoping that happens near my neighborhood. Sometimes yeah. I could use a couple more bucks. But but, but, but yeah. to, to tie it in, you're expecting as a defense lawyer, you're selling to the jury that they will uphold their, their oath and follow the law and enforce the law. Well, if they're on I-285 grabbing money on a Monday morning, they're probably not the people you want on your jury. And it's more and more like that, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, it's probably going to be that way for a little while longer, uh, you know, given, given the trends. But um, it sounds like you've spent your whole um, career in Atlanta. Yeah. From Michigan, moved here. In 1990, mainly, I, ironically, because I uh, got fired from a summer internship, and it just came to, to bear because my daughter's a 2L, and uh, she just got a, a full-time offer um, at a firm, and I told her, that's great, you're, you're ahead of me, because I got literally fired. They told me we didn't want you, and I had to start all over again, and I got lucky and got one job offer in Atlanta and took it. Well, that's, well, that's, that's amazing. Why in the world did you see most, most of my clients that are attorneys, they tell their children, do not go into law. Did you encourage that with your daughter? Yeah, it's been a fantastic practice for me. It's been a wonderful way of life, high pressure, high stakes, but there's high rewards. Um, and, you know, it was the one thing in life. I'm a, I'm not maybe a C student high school. I was a B minus student. I got waitlisted, got to Michigan State, probably because I was a rural affirmative action kid, maybe. I lived in the, in the middle of nowhere on a farm. Um, and then uh, at Wayne State Law School, I was a B student, but I, well, law school, at Michigan State, I was a C student, went to Wayne State, and like it, it clicked. Oh my gosh, yeah. this, this lead, reading cases, fact patterns to learn a, a rule, it clicked with me. So, you know, no regrets. Well, that's, that that's terrific. Now, um, I want to talk uh, kind of about your philosophy yeah. when it comes to litigation, because so just to kind of set this up, 
you know, I try, I mean, you know what I do for a living as a jury consultant and, and witness prep specialist. And I work on high stakes litigation, just like you. And I follow the defense bar very closely. And I follow the plaintiff's bar very closely. And I see plaintiff attorneys getting a lot, and I mean a lot of supplemental training, particularly with trial tactics. And I see the defense trying to catch up with them. They haven't done such a great job. Uh, they've done a little bit, um, but a lot, a lot. But it's it's mostly, you know, trial tactics, right? And wow. then, you know, and, and this is no surprise to anyone at, at this point, there, there's very few cases statistically that actually go to, that go to trial. And so I do think trial skills are very, very important because you may have Absolutely. to go to the mat one day. You may have to go to war. But in most cases... You're you're trying to negotiate a resolution to the case. You're trying to you're trying to resolve the case, and and I know that you focus a lot on this. And I know you have a, a a seminar. It sounds like you do, which um uh talks about uh, negotiation. It's called uh, the Masters of Negotiation that you teach the uh, claim insurance claims people and uh and legal professionals. Um, tell us a little about your just kind of general philosophy when it comes to negotiation and a little bit of, uh, about the details of your seminar. Okay, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'll give you the kind of watershed moment in my career and then follow it up with some statistics. So the watershed moment in my career is I was a young, I was at a, a, a big firm in Atlanta for a decade, made partner, blah, blah, blah. But when I was a fifth or sixth year lawyer, I was begging this insurance executive to send me work. And he shouldn't have. I was a young guy who probably didn't know what I was doing, but I kept asking. And one day he called me and he said, hey, I have this new program. It's a public entity and we win almost every case because we got these immunity defenses, et cetera. We win almost every case, but we're spending a hundred grand per case. Every case, they, the defense counsel who they love does the case the same way. And we usually win, but after we pay about a hundred grand fees, the lawyer has a conflict in this case. It's a death case. There's a little kid, there's four or five defendants in the case, co-defendants. And he said, and, and the budget was 80 grand. They thought they would win, but bill 80 grand. And he said, get out of it quicker and more efficiently, and you're my lawyer. Wow. And no one ever told me that. I mean, I was told, bill, 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 keep billing. The only way you make money is your bill. So um, it was bizarre world, right? Yeah. Get rid of a case early, and it will lead to more opportunities. So- Maybe at that point, I realized I was a pretty good negotiator, deal maker. Um, and I just worked the plaintiff's lawyer for about a month explaining why I shouldn't be in the case, why she didn't need me in the case, why it would be better perhaps to go against the other guys. And I built four grand and got a voluntary dismissal in about four weeks. And, and sure enough, that the, the, his name was Charles Spencer. He was with the Hartford in 1995 and 1996. And he said, you did what I told you, you delivered, you're my lawyer, and multi-million dollars later, Hartford's still a client of ours in, in seven states. Wow, that's that 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 that's really amazing. And you brought up something interesting, um, which I, I know is a this a struggle on the only the defense side, because they bill hourly, the plaintiffs obviously don't. Um, but the philosophy of Resolving matters quickly to get more volume of work from a client, right? Yep. Versus the bill your ass off 
<laughs> model, extend the case as long as possible to bill, which, you know, insurance, a lot of insurance companies don't like that. And there's a lot of finger pointing with that. Has that been, um, is this a philosophy that, that you've been able to use throughout your firm and other attorneys and how have you been able to, I guess, inside sell that to your people as opposed to the traditional bill, bill, bill model? Well, absolutely. It's our philosophy and we internally train it. Um, I wrote a book on it called The Disruptive Lawyer's Little Black Book of Litigation Management. Wrote it in about 2016. And, and since you're uh, doing, I, I, I kind of use profanity. The, the, the book was premised on a speech I gave a decade ago entitled The 10 Ways Your Panel Counsel Screws You. <laughs> and it was a little impolitic, but that was fine. And from that, I just wrote a book on how your panel counsel was complicating in running adverse to your goals. And at the end of the day, so lawyers are complicators. At the end of the day, in any case, I don't care if there's one witness, 50 witnesses, one document, 50,000 documents, 1,000 in damages, 10 million in damages. There are only three um, results in any case. Settle, dispositive motion, or trial. That is it. I don't care how complicated you think a case is. There's only three buckets. So the issue becomes, when you get a case in, is what buckets is it going to go into? Yeah. Now, here's for your statistics. Because I have guys all the time saying, we don't sell. We're, we want to be known as SOBs, insurance companies, and, and, and Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. And I say, that's fantastic. How many cases did you try last year? <laughs> Every big company, except like the voluminous state farms, all states, try yeah. less than 1% of their cases a year. Less than 1%. 92% on average settle, five to seven, eight percent get gone on dispositive motions, and less than one percent go to trial. So here's what I ask in my seminar series because my I, my attitude is, if 92% of your cases settle, when do you settle them? After you pay your counsel five grand, twenty grand, fifty grand, a hundred grand, two hundred grand, and trust me. Their bill, there are some scenarios where you have to pay them 100 grand or 200, but you better be getting your return on investment. Sure. It shouldn't just be, we do everything the same way every time. We do scatter shot discovery, then we do depositions. At 20 years ago, I took depositions in 90% of my cases. I filed motions for summary judgment in 75% of our cases. We probably won 20%. Today, and I keep metrics on all this, we do, I call it the deposition bleed. We do depositions in less than a third of our cases now. Wow. Because we know what the issue is in the case. Yeah. And we sit down with the other side and we'll go into this, I think, because uh, you mentioned it. And, sure. and then we, you can't settle everything early, but we know 1% are going to trial. So why are we acting like 99% are going to trial? Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting, um, you know, per, per, perspective on this. And um, I, again, I see, um, because they come through my email box. I see some seminars trying to get defense attorneys out there to learn, you know, opening statement skills, you know, Im improve your voir dire skills. And we're talking about 1%, right? Um, next to your seminar, I I haven't really seen a lot of training out there to be it a better to, to, to be a better um negotiator. So so that being said, um what are some of the um because our audience is mostly mostly defense counsel. Yeah, we got some plaintiff attorneys. By the way, the 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 plaintiff attorneys that listen to this show are actually increasing. Thank you very much. We love you, plaintiff attorneys, uh, and then some insurance claims people as well. Um, what are some of the common mistakes you see um, 
by defense counsel in the negotiation process, because here's the thing. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Bill. I don't think many defense attorneys have any formal training in negotiation tactics, yet they're be, they're getting put in that position on every single case, right? And so where are they getting their skills from? What, well, I think that they're winging it. What are some of the top mistakes you see that may, maybe intuitively may seem like a good idea, but you're really shooting yourself in the foot and putting, you know, doing a disservice to your client? Well, I'm going to answer the question, but make a note. You're exactly right. So I'm finalizing a book called The Disruptive Lawyer's Little Black Book of Negotiation. And why I'm doing it is I realized, and I've done a lot of research on this, no one is training on negotiation, or and if the 1% that do aren't necessarily doing it effectively. Yeah. Negotiation is all about leverage points and communication. I was just at a major carrier in the last year where I, I got to do my litigation management presentation in the in the, this head of claim said, hey, you did a great job. You guys got to get out of here by, by noon because we have this white shoe firm that comes in every year and they do their they do their mediation presentation. We love it. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'd love to see where they're, do they have a leverage point checklist? And she looked at me, what, <laughs> what are you, the talking, hell are you about? talking about? <laughs> I mean, and I'm like, you guys don't talk about, and that's like going, going to a dietician and they don't mention calories. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so at the end of the day, and I still get people will hire, call me and say, Hey, I just heard about you. I've read about you fill out this form because we want to hire your firm one day and I'll get a questionnaire and there'll be a hundred questions and 99 are about literally tell me all the cases you tried. What were the verdicts? And I'll call the guy up and say, I'm happy to spend three days doing this, but yeah. how many cases you all tried the last three years? They're like, Zero. We, yeah, we got exactly. to $4 million two years ago. We don't try. So I'm like, if you aren't trying cases, why aren't you vetting and hiring really good negotiators? And a really good negotiator is going to save you probably 30 to 50% in legal expense and costs and zero to 30% in indemnity. Wow. And, and those are those people out there that say, well, you know, when you settle the case early, you're going to pay more indemnity. I strongly disagree. And what's interesting, um, I love CLM, the uh, claim, um, litigate, Claims Litigation Management. It's a um, great national uh, institute. And they did a survey for, for 100 carriers, from really big ones to the small ones. And they were asked two interesting questions in the survey. One, do you think the cost, after you, as the cost of um, um, law, legal fees going up, in cost, they said yes. Do you feel like you're getting a return on investment on the indemnity dollars? The answer was no. And then they asked, "Who do you blame?" They put seventy-five percent of the blame on the plaintiff's lawyer, twenty percent on complicated cases, and three percent on defense counsel. They are absolutely wrong. It's seventy-five percent their defense counsel's fault that they are putting the case in a posture through leverage points and great communication to get it in, a, in, 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 tel, in, in emotional intelligence to put them in a position to get the case done earlier. Um, so I filibuster on the front end. Yeah, and if no. you want me to ask about answer what I think the mistakes folks make or how they could be better at, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, because I'd I like to know some of the common pitfalls because again, it's like with anything else in life, um, 
you get thrown into a situation, you don't have any formal training. Hey, we all do our best. And you know, sometimes, sometimes you squeak by, sometimes you really step in it, sometimes you succeed, but it really takes a lot of time and repetition to get good at something but you make a lot of mistakes on the way, yeah. right? And that's, I think that's with anybody's career and various skill sets. What are some, maybe like the top three things you see that defense yeah. counsel do when they're trying to negotiate with plaintiff's counsel that, that tends to backfire and it's just ineffective, yeah. but maybe they, it's just, maybe it's yeah. kind of intuitively, it makes sense. It just doesn't work. Great question. And this is a maturation pop. I've been doing this for 33 years. So I have made every mistake twice yeah great time so and so you learn along the way um but i think what i've learned is number one you got to pick up the phone and you got to call the other side in every case every case is different i don't want it, it's an art it, there's some science but there's mostly art so every case number one approach different don't assume that every case is the same every case is different every case has different leverage points and what i mean by this is i'll give you an example if I have a case that is a 10 out of 10 loser, I hire you and you're like, you guys, you're going to lose this case 10 out of 10 times. And the verdict, it's going to be a million dollars every time. And we say, okay, we need a mediator. What's the value? I don't know the value. I can tell you what's a reasonable range, but what happens to the plaintiff lives in Hawaii? And if they're going to go try the case, they got to go to Florida and they're going to leave four minor children behind Hawaii. You think they'll take well less than a million to sell the case? True. It's a leverage point. What happens if the plaintiff in, 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 in the trial, it's going to come out that they were less than faithful with their spouse because they're claiming a lot of other damages. Do you think that plaintiff might take a little less money than a jury and their spouse finding out that they were infidel, that, they're, you know, that they cheated? Yes. So every case has leverage yeah. and you have to find the leverage. To do that, however, that's, that's, that would say that's problem number two. Number one is you got to call the other side. And, and have a transparent, open discussion with them saying, hey, I just got the case in. I see you're demanding X. I know nothing about it. I know you're a really good lawyer. If you're demanding X, you must have a reason for it. Tell me what I'm missing or what's going on or why you think that way. And you're being, you're being open-minded, resolution-focused, and non-combative. And sometimes... And I, this has happened to me where I looked at a case, I'm like, this complete BS, we're going to win. I've done an evaluation report saying this is a zero, we're going to win. And then the plaintiff brought, you know, springs on me some witness document or statute that we just didn't appreciate. And now I have egg on my face. And it's hard to go back. And many times in those conversations, they'll say, well, Bill, I, you might, you know, let me tell you why we're going to win. OCGA, blah, 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 says you have a duty and you breach the duty. And I might say, oh, my God. That guy's right. I didn't realize that. So you, it's better to find out today than nine months in the case after I build 80 grand. Yeah. And many people say, well, wait, we don't want to be transparent because we want to hold things close to our best. That is true. And I have a whole litany of times when you want to be tra really transparent, times when you want. The simple thing is this. The more objective information you have, that if a plaintiff wants to lie about something that you can say, well, I don't care what, you know, I do EPL cases, for example. If someone says, I, I'm going to sue him because I have fired, my client got fired because she's a woman and we come back and say, well, she was the worst saleswoman and, and they say, no, she wasn't. And I can show them objective data for five years. She was the worst saleswoman. Yeah. I don't know how they counter that. 
And it might lead that, and I love to hear from plaintiff's lawyers, but most plaintiff's lawyers don't want to get into a money pit. They don't sure. want to invest in the case and realize six months in after a hundred hours and 15 grand of depositions, oh crap, this sucks. They're stuck. But on day one, if you say, I gotcha, A, they sometimes walk, which we get a lot of walkways, or B, it goes from 80 grand down to, I'm going to take whatever I can get, and I'll take 10, 15 grand, I move it. So step one is that, being an open communicator in that issue spot. And sometimes you're like, well, you know, it's about causation. Okay, we agree this case about causation, so we'll take depositions on two doctors to find out if there's causation. And then once we do that, we'll get back to the table. So I think most lawyers go in and say, pick up the phone, and they literally say, John, you got your demand. This is bullshit. This is a no liability case. This is a bullshit. We'll see you in court. And what is what is the plaintiff supposed to do with that? Bag, bag for a counter and say, okay, we'll ask you. I'll see you in court. And then we know 92% are going to settle. So when are you going to talk about it? Yeah. That's that that's that's a that's a very good point, uh, Bill. Uh, something else that's uh, on the same theme here, um, and this has come up on several other podcasts, is there is this percentage of plaintiff attorneys who have um, developed this communication style of just pretty much coming out with middle fingers, saying policy limits, and I don't want to talk. Like I'm not talking to you unless you have a check in your hand yeah. for the policy limit. And my demand's going up every week. You don't get this. I mean, and, and they, they're very belligerent and almost impossible to deal with. How do you deal with that type of plaintiff attorney? Because more and more of them are, are popping yeah. up and they're creating well, a problem and a lot of headaches. Why, why is that? Because they've got more leverage with larger verdicts, right? Yeah. So the leverage paradigm is, is, has switched to some degree. But there's two things. One, don't be afraid to throw that case in the trial bucket. It's okay. I'm not saying don't try cases. I'm just saying the re practical reality is only 1% go to trial, so stop pretending. And, you know, if a case is worth $2 million bucks, it's worth spending hundred grand on legal to see if you can find a leverage point. So, you know, but I, I'm mostly focusing on cases under a couple hundred grand where, you know, you're going to bill 70, 80 grand and then settle for 150. You probably could bill 10 grand and settle for 120. But, sure. you know, if they're flipping you off, this is where I think a very good trained, skilled negotiator can talk somebody down. And if they have a, a relationship with them, maybe, or share some leverage. But I think a really good, a bad negotiator, 99 to 100 times, can't do anything and it's in suit and they're litigating it. A good negotiator, maybe 50 out of 100 times, can talk them into a demand. Or move them into, you know what, I, I've done this before with guys. I, I have guys who will say, um, I'm at 500 grand. Um, no, they don't even give me a demand. They're like, I don't want to make a demand because I have a great case and I want to take three depositions. And once I take these depositions, I'm going to have you and you're going to have to pay a lot of money. And, and I'll say, hey, why don't we do this? Let's assume you're right. We do the three depositions and you're right. You get the Perry Mason moment and you annihilate me in the depositions. You get exactly what you want. What's your demand? And they're <laughs> like, up, 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 up. no, you kick my ass. You got it. What's your instead of doing it four months from now after you do the depositions, you do hundred hours of work. What would it be? And literally, they'll be like, well, if, if you're telling me I get everything, I demand half a million dollars. I'm like, okay, good. 
you're at a half a million dollars, my move, I'll, I'll come back and talk to you. And then during that negotiation, guess what? You chisel away, well, just so you know, that isn't gonna happen. And in fact, I might give you an affidavit to show what you thought you were gonna get that would blow the case away isn't gonna happen. Especially if it's objective. You don't have to sit through, you don't have to depose my CFO on a case over, you know, a, um, a, a bonus. It's supposed to be an $800,000 bonus. Rather than you do this, we're going to sit at a conference table with my CFO and he's going to show you why the bonus is about 200 grand. So before you sue me and fight for two years, spend two hours with us in the conference room so you realize this is a $200,000 money pit, not an $800,000 money pit. So there's different skills to develop, okay. but it all begins with communication. I absolutely agree. Um, you've heard the phrase, um, timing is everything. Um, and, um, I'd like your thoughts on idea. I'm going to be a little idealistic here. When is the ideal time to start talking with your adversary on these issues? And then secondly, um, I'm pretty sure you've had the unfortunate experience of parachuting in on a case later in the game where somebody else has maybe <laughs> poisoned the well on you and you're trying to do some rehabilitation. Talk to me about uh, timing and how that can make a difference in your negotiation tactics. Well, timing, every case is fluid. So I use, when I talk about leverage, it is a kaleidoscope. That's my me metaphor. With every day in the case, every month in the case, every event in the case, the kaleidoscope of leverage changes. Some appear, some go away, some evaporate, some reappear. And so, you know, you have to be very, very astute in being able to identify as they go. I've had cases where I've been able to leverage, there were too many plaintiffs in the case and not enough money. And yeah. we saved off the limits. Leverage reservation of rights. Hey, I know you want a million, you think this case is worth a hundred grand in, in um, damages and a million in, in, in um, punitives. You understand punitives aren't covered. So when you get, your $1.1 million verdict, you're gonna get hundred grand, right? Or do you realize that it's gonna be taxed so that million dollars really turns into 650? So we're not that far apart. There's a there's leverage. You've got to be thinking the whole time, and every case is different. I have exploited two sets of leverage points that saved my clients seven figures in the last nine months that I've never used in 33 years. Wow. And and both of them. Don't, don't get me wrong. I didn't trick the plaintiff's lawyer. It was, I found something and was able to go to the other side and say, let me educate you. You thought it was X. We kind of thought it was X, but you, no one saw Y. Now with Y, it's not, it's like 50% of X. So maybe let's get to the table. Plaintiff's lawyers, you know, hey, just like, I know you helicopter into cases all the time. And I know as what you do and what I do is monitoring councils. Most of the time, I look at a case going to trial, and I'm like, "What the f are they thinking?" <laughs> they're they're relying on theories, and I'll ask a question. I love your theory. You're going to kill them, but can you tell me the admissible evidence that supports your theory? And you'll have a 25 year who's who defense lawyer go, "Uh, we, we're not there yet." And like, <laughs> we're 24 months in the case, and it's going down trial in 60 days, and there's a demand for two million, and you don't want to offer money. 
and you don't have admissible evidence, right? You see it all the time. Do you not? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's yeah. Shocking. It's, it's shocking. Unfortunately, it's becoming the new normal. Um, yeah. So that, that's very interesting. Now talk to me how you deal with it when you are parachuting in on a case and the per, the defense attorney before you maybe muddied up the water, didn't have a good relationship with plaintiff counsel. Can 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 you can you save that sinking ship? Yeah. So so usually when I parachute in, I parachute in as monitoring counsel. Usually not as trial counsel. Okay. Um, but a, I'll review the file in it, maybe the you know. Trial is a story. You would know it better and you could articulate it better than me. We yeah. know that um, the great movie um, producers and, and, and directors can tell, you could give me the script in that movie, you know, Scorsese's script, and it would be a different movie, wouldn't it? This yeah. would be fantastic and people watching <laughs> mine after six minutes would leave saying, what the hell was that? Trials are the same way. So we might take the file, look at it and say, oh, there's a little, there's a nugget here that's good. There's a nugget there that you didn't think about. You know, we had a case years ago where we were in trouble and we're about, we take over cases about to go to trial and we go and look at the plaintiff's um, uh, um, tra um, traffic record, license history, and they had following too closely about a year after the incident. And this person was saying they were room for life. Well, I look at it, I'm like, following too closely, that means they rear-ended somebody. Boom, flipped the case, because this lady was saying she had never been in a wreck tree um, post-incident. She has had no incidents, injuries post-incident. And we actually took over and tried that case and ruined her with that, with that um, because she lied to the jury. But when, here's another example of, of them just helicoptering in. I had a case recently where we helicopter in in the the, the you know, the trial, the trial counsel is going, has ruined, you know, has, you know, made, put a black collar on the case. I just called the other side and say, here's the deal. You, I am the white knight. Here is your window. If you're trying to move, move the case, it's right now. This guy wants to try the case and he's going to do whatever he can to try the case for whatever reason, because he believes in it. He's a pig. I don't know why, but he wants to try this case. I am your white knight. A, what are we missing so you can arm me to go back to this carrier and get more money, right? And he'll put his cards on the table and sometimes they're good, yeah. sometimes they're not. And B, okay, I'm going to help you and try to find a way to get rid of this because this guy, but our window's right here. And then I have a time frame too, right? That, you know, at some point I call him saying, here's the deal. They're about to fire me. My window is closing right in the next week. So if you want to get real, I need you to get real because, you know, you're, I'm doing the inverse, right? Because yeah. a lot of guys say I have, you know, Pete Law helicoptering to try this case. Well, I can say I'm about to evaporate. If you want to get a deal done, I'm your guy and it's now and it goes away. And guys get real. Yeah. That's that that is really, really, really interesting. I think this is a it's a great topic. Um, another question, then we'll, I got a couple more for you, then, then we'll wrap up. Yeah. Um, how, how do you, how do you deal with the situation? How does it affect your negotiation strategy when you have co-defendants involved? Um, cause now you have multiple targets yeah, yeah, yeah. with multiple pockets, right? So it, it does complicate yeah. things. And then sometimes you have some finger pointing, right? Between defendants. Yeah. 
And that, and that's the best position for the plaintiff, right? Because they yeah. know they're getting money. But how do you deal with that when you're trying to protect your client and you're in that kind of messy situation? Well, again, it, where's the leverage? Yeah. I love when I'm the tip of the tail of the dog, meaning I have cases where there's, it's a construction defect case or a G dot, you know, that case and they sued everybody. Yeah. And I'll go to the plaintiff's court lawyer early on and say, let's face it. You sued me because you just are covering your bases. I'm going to give you an expert affidavit and other information. I will put together data from the file, from the GDOT file, to show we weren't there or it wasn't our duty. And so, A, dismiss me, or B, why don't you let us give you some money, 50, 100 grand? Because I'll tell my client, we're about to build 400 grand on this 25, <laughs> 25 party case. So, either A, I'm going to bill 400 grand, then we're going to go to mediation, or B, let's see if we can get out of this case. No case gets better for the defendant 99% of the time. So I will go to the plaintiff's lawyer and say, how about you use some of my money? You don't need me. You won't miss me if I'm gone. And so on the front end, I do that. And, and sometimes that works. Sometimes they'll say, you know what, because of apportionment, I just got to ride this out. So when they do that, this is what happens at mediation. I work with the guy for the for a year, developing a really good relationship or very transparent relationship. So he's not worrying about me and he's not pissed at me that he's going to make a make a uh, target of me. We go to mediation and guess what? I'm at a hundred. Like I had mediation recently where you know two million, one million, and then a bunch of guys at 150 to 200. And their last move is they wanted everyone to come up at 75 grand. I just told my client, it's up to you. There's no way they're going to, the gross number is 3.8 million. There's no way they're going to blow this deal because they need an extra 75 grand from us. Yeah. So if you want to be a great guy and offer 75 grand, do it, but you don't have to. And I can call the guy and say, I, I tried to pay you this money a year and a half ago. You didn't take it. You now made me build this much. So I can't get you the 75 grand. In that case, that's what we did. Everyone paid the extra 75. We didn't. But um so that's what you're doing the multi-party cases you're always looking for leverage and it always changes okay last question bill what do you what do you do and and i think you've probably been in this position before i think i think it's fairly rare it's i don't think it's very common but it's common where you do develop a good communication uh line of communication with plaintiff's counsel and they tell you listen my client's nuts they're, they're not in this for the money they want blood. They want revenge. They want embarrassment. I'm trying to convince them to take this settlement. I don't want to try this case. My client's crazy. I, and I've seen this before. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen to where the plaintiff attorney and you are actually on the same page. It's the plaintiff that's lost their mind. What, what are you doing in that situation? A, I think there's at least a 75% chance it's a negotiation tactic. Really? Yes. So you think they're yes. trying to pull a fast one on you? Like, hey, I'm well, just negotiating. It's not a fast one. They're just negotiating. And part of negotiation is posturing and bluffing. I call it the theater of mediation because everyone's playing their part. And never let your guard down in mediation. I've been in mediations where the mediators like they're about to walk. And I'm like, oh, geez, they're going to walk. Okay, let, let, let's think about it. And I'll go for a walk and I'll see them in the, having a coffee. And I'm like, hey, man, don't worry. We're going to. I think we're going to have a big move next time. And you're like, oh, yeah, the meteor was BSing us because he's trying to get it done. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I think 
they're probably posturing, but if they're not, then you have to develop a strategy to appeal to that. And very quick example, I had a case where I had a client got a new case in, they fired a, a, a waiter for theft in front of the whole staff at the end of the night, fired Steve for theft. Then they look at the video the next day and they're like, oh shit, he uh, didn't steal. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> right? Oops. So so the the counsel for the restaurant wanted to tell, give them a to go to hell letter when they made a demand. I said, no, nope, you're going to do the opposite immediately. You're going to write Steve a letter saying we messed up. Right. Well, jury, know, jury would know we messed up. So what, instead of telling in front of a jury a year and a half now, when they do the old, they don't get it. Today they're finally apologizing. I said, A, immediately write him a letter apologizing. B, offer the job back. C, you're going to have a meeting with the staff telling them we effed up. Steve's a good guy. We are at fault. We messed up. And we're going to put a letter in the in the break room saying we messed up. And then I go in to call the plant floor and say, we've done all this stuff. I know we messed up, but it was a manager. The owner has done everything to unring this bell. What do you want to do now? Yeah. And then the case, the case settled well for under the cost of defense. So you've got to apologize. It's okay. These lawyers, we get stuck in this thing. No, no, we can't do this. Think outside the box. It's okay to apologize in, in some instances. Well, well, Bill, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a uh, terrific discussion. Tell our audience members, because I think our audience members are going to want to learn more about this topic where can they get your book and and where can they get information about your seminar absolutely go to um you can email me at bmitchell at cmlawfirm.com you can also go to cmlawfirm.com and go in and and we have you know i i do this um series twice a year called the masters of negotiation and there's about six 45 minute seminars um it's mainly directed at claims people on the insurance defense side okay um, I'm contemplating doing a lawyer one. If lawyers want to reach out to me, i um, love to hear from them. And I'd love to get some constructive feedback on how to make things better. And of course, we have the two books. One is out and one's about to come out. And again, you just go to the website. But with that, I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah. And I would conclude with this. Sure. I appreciated the value of jury consultants because I do. Part of one of my seminars is how to identify the 1%. Yeah. And I think about when identifying the 1%, Today, because of the crazy jury verdicts, it likely involves a jury consultant. So we can make a sober assessment yeah. of what's going to happen here. Yeah, I appreciate that because um, what I see in my job every day is I see claims people and a, a defense counsel not agreeing on the true liability, uh, you know, and, and the true value of the case. And so we try to come in and be a, a neutral, you know, an objective party to really look at things empirically to really get some real answers so that then um, that helps people like you to help your negotiation determining, you know, based on what we find. So that's, that's really important. So Bill, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And good luck. Any predictions, any predictions on uh, the, the Michigan state football team? I mean, is a Rose bowl this year? What, what, what what's going I think, on? I think they, they're in horrific status. I, for some reason, they had a lot of transfers and uh, they did. a lot of people. And so I think Michigan, who I was so scared when they hired Harbaugh, and then he almost got fired. And yes. now he's flipped them. Now he's flipped. I, I, I'm i like, 
Harbaugh's got, I mean, I had Michigan grad. I had worked with a lot of Michigan grad and they were calling me going, he's done. He's done. He's done. And then before you know it, he turns, everybody makes the playoff and um, he's a weird guy though, isn't he? Yeah. Kind of a, kind of a screwy guy, but you know what? That's what it takes. All those guys are weird, man. They work 120 hours a week and that's all they care about. I know. I know. But Hey, you know what? Like they say, winning solves everything, right? Yeah. All right. Bill, so, thank you. You're very kind guest. And thank you for uh, uh, the opportunity. Anytime. Bill Mitchell, thank you so much. And to our audience members, this is the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Bill Kanaski, we'll see you next time.